Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Tim brings us a message where we look at some confusing actions of Jesus, where he turns over tables and curses a fig tree with no fruit. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. Hey, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 20, 21. By the way, my name is Tim. If I haven't met you, welcome to South Harbor, yada, yada, yada. Uh, Matthew 21, we are in, oh, if you are new with us, uh, we, you're joining us kind of at the, the second third of Matthew. We've been in a year-long study through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, looking at the life of Jesus as Matthew tells his story. Matthew is the least likely of the disciples to be a disciple. Um, his resume was looking pretty bad up until Jesus calls him. And uh, Jesus brings something up out of this guy that uh, he ends up to go on to do some amazing things. One of those is he writes down um, the life of Jesus, what we call the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we spent, so we spent, uh, just to catch you up if, you're, if you are new with us, uh, we spent nine months unpacking, kind of relatively, uh, Matthew paints with some broader strokes. Uh, we spent nine months unpacking essentially largely three years of Jesus' public ministry. Then last week, we noticed that there's a turn in the text, and uh, for the next three months, um, beginning last week, we are looking at, uh, so Matthew's going to go into great detail on just one week in the life of Jesus, uh, between two Sundays, Palm Sunday, where the crowds cheer him, he's a king, and they, they wave palm branches, and that, Palm Sunday, uh, and Easter Sunday. And while uh, typically in a normal church year, we're going to, we do Palm Sunday on Palm Sunday, and then we go home, and maybe we, some of us come back for Maundy Thursday or Good Friday, um, but then we come back on Easter, and we can miss all this drama that happens between these two Sundays. Matthew needs us to see this. And um, what you're going to discover, and what we've been discovering, is uh, beginning in this section of Matthew, Matthew 21, uh, the tension starts to turn up. Jesus has left home in the Galilee, and he's gone down south to Jerusalem, the capital city where the temple is. And uh, all of a sudden now, the pressure begins to build. Within the next three and four days, uh, the crowds are going to go from excited to, we got to kill this guy. Uh, and so we're kind of slowly going to walk through that. I want, you to, I want you to meet new players. I want you to see um, kind of this, the drama as the drama unfolds. Uh, and then one of the things we've been doing, in, uh, so every kind of micro-series, and then Matthew, I've been trying to, uh, my goal is not just to uh, teach you the book, but I, wanna, I want to teach you how to read the book. I want you to, I want you to have access to this stuff, because um, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun when you learn certain tools and certain ways to read the Bible. So we've been, uh, I've been trying every micro-series to introduce a new way to kind of work through this, and um, they, you, you can kind of really choose any of them, but I've been trying to choose a different way. So we uh, spent the first section of Matthew talking about the importance of questions, and we spent a lot of time just like wrestling with how do we ask questions, what are the right questions. And then we spent, I think, early summer, we spent a lot of time talking about the Jewish ways of reading the text. Uh, we talked about, remember the word pardes, if you were with us? Uh, the word remez, apparently it was super helpful. Um, Learn never to ask a real question if you think the answer is probably, I have no idea what you're talking about. All right, uh, we spent the last season, uh, I taught you a game that I like to play called Find the Elephant. Do you remember this game? Okay, okay, thank you. Um, so Find the Elephant really just like, where is the problem in the text? 
I'm often the problem in the text. I think that's weird in the text. It's actually an insight into there may be more going on here. Uh, last week, I introduced you to another way uh, of reading the text uh, where you're looking at the different layers inside of the biblical text. Uh, what we often do when we come to uh, the Bible is we'll read a passage, and the first question we ask is, what does this passage mean for me? What am I supposed to do with this? God, what do you want me to do because I've read this thing? And uh, that's, that's, that's an important question. It may be the most important question. And if you start there, if you go right from Bible to what do I do with this, you miss out on all the fun stuff. All the, and in fact, actually, you can misunderstand what you're reading uh, sometimes. Sometimes your initial reading of the Bible is not actually the, the, the intentional meaning of the scriptures. Uh, so we've uh, last week introduced to you, okay, let, let's just, just think of them as layers. And there's certain questions you ask every time you peel back a, a set of layers to the text. Uh, so we talked about the historical layer and then a the political layer and a biblical layer and a geographical layer and then a social layer. And um, what we saw last week, again, some recap, uh, is that the story that we know as Palm Sunday, pretty familiar story to many of us, uh, if you start to peel back these layers, there is all of this, it's like this subversive, provocative statement Jesus is making. And they understood what he was making. They understood, the original audience, those who were there, understood the this, this statement. We're going to pick up the story where we left off last, uh, last week. Uh, this story today is going to be the story that will light the fuse that will end up with a group of people saying, we've got we to gotta kill this guy. Um, so if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 21, verse 12. Matthew 21, verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out, drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It's written, he said to them. My house will be called the house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw, that the, saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them, and he went out to, of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the, the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what, this, what was done to this fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe and you will receive, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Okay, that's our story. Um, we're gonna, some of this we'll save for next week, but we'll, we're gonna do our best to work through this story. What do we do with this story? Now, but before we start peeling back the layers, again, we learned this lesson week one. You gotta ask, I want you to be comfortable asking the questions. Um, I, I know that if you grew up in a, a, uh, some backgrounds in the faith, uh, Christian faith, you may feel like asking the questions is, the word that was associated with when I was a kid was, it was sputting or it was wrong. You're not supposed to do that. Um, but asking the questions actually allows us to be honest in, with the text, and it actually allows us to help uh, uncover what the meaning is behind this thing. So you read a story like this, what are, your, what are the questions? Um, I'll give you some of mine. My big question is, why is Jesus so angry? Right? He's got to start there. Why is he so angry? Why is he flipping over tables? 
Like, what, like that seems like, okay, that's, a, that's, a, that, that's angry. Why is he uh, driving out money changers and like there's birds flying? What do you do with this story? The weirdest part of the story for me, I don't, I don't know, for me, the weirdest part of the story is the whole fig tree thing. Like, why is he curse a fig tree? And you read the text, it's like, well, Matthew says he's hungry. Okay, uh, that doesn't help, but he's hungry. Okay, it, to make it even more, so we got four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, four Gospels. The other Gospels also record the story, and they add some details to the story that don't actually help the story make sense to me, at least. Let me, at least on first read, let me uh, show you what Mark says about this story. Mark says, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry, seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf. He went to find out if it had any fruit. Whether, when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And he curses it. Okay, uh, that's, a weird, that's a weird detail, right? Like, so, so Mark's like, oh, by the way, it's not the season for figs. This would be like you going to an orange tree growing in Michigan in the winter and saying, how dare you not give me oranges right now? Like, what? Like, you expected oranges from an orange tree in Michigan winters. Like, what, Jesus, what is going on here? Why, uh, why are you so angry? And why is that anger almost, it almost feel, feels irrational or irresponsible? Like, what, what, what did the tree do to you? These are the right questions. Ask the questions. It's an appropriate question. Um, and then, uh, if you, again, if you hold the story side by side, John adds a detail to the story, so the author John, that's even harder to, to wrestle with. So this is, if this is funny, um, John's detail is a little disturbing. John tells us that Jesus makes a whip of cords to drive out people from the temple courts. He makes a whip. And uh, we read this, and, and by the way, this passage, uh, if there's any passage that has, um, that has been, like people have used to justify some pretty ugly stuff, it's this passage. Jesus makes a whip of cords. Um, you hear this used again and again and again as a way of, um, usually it's, it goes something like this. This is the dialogue. It's like, uh, you know, Jesus is, Jesus is really loving and, and grace and peace, and that's the way of Jesus. Yeah, but sometimes you got to bring out the whip. Yeah, but, but then Jesus went to the cross, and he said, forgive them. And Yeah, but sometimes you got to bring out the whip. Right? And then you go back and forth, and this is almost like the, well, you, the, the, what, what do you do with this one? Sometimes Jesus, you know, like he whipped people. Sometimes you gotta, like, you got to deal with it. you got to bust out the whip. Uh, this passage has been used to justify a lot of really weird theology. More than that, this passage has been used to justify some really, really ugly, um, maybe some of the ugliest, absolutely, the ugliest things that this world has seen has used this passage to justify it. For example, um, Adolf Hitler in his book Mein Kampf, uh, Adolf Hitler quotes this story and he says, in boundless love as a Christian and as a man, I read through the passage which tells us how the Lord at last rose in his might and seized the scourge to drive out of the temple the brood of vipers and the adders. How terrific was his fight for the world against the Jewish poison. Thus I believe that I am acting in accordance with the will of the Almighty Creator. By defending myself against the Jew, I am fighting for the work of the Lord. I mean, it's like stomach turning, it's ugly, but what do you do with that? Because Jesus does get angry, and you maybe even, you could even say he feels irrationally angry. Um, You could see how... uh, Hitler, I don't see how he got to where he got. But you can see how people can get to the spot of, well, Jesus gets angry. We've got to be angry. We've got to have a passion. Um, take it even to a longer extreme. Uh, there are people who have been told a really messed up theology that has been anchored in this passage. I know people, and my guess is you know people, and maybe you are one of these people, who 
um, subtly it creeps in. And I don't know if it's overt on the, I don't know if it's overt originally, but it subtly creeps in that maybe God doesn't, maybe God's angry with me. Maybe the whole grace and love and peace and truth thing, well, that's good, and that's like it's like it's nice to think of God that way, but but maybe the actual state of God, the actual nature of God is angry. And maybe God's anger is actually turned on me. You want to watch a sincere believer, somebody who sincerely wants to be a person of faith, follow God. If you want to see something mess with their mind, you convince them that the God of the universe is a monster and he's angry with you. Like That'll mess people up. And yet the question remains, what do we do with it? What do we do with this passage? Because it's a, it's a tough passage. So those are the questions. Do you have other questions in it? There's probably other ones. Um, but let's, let's do the work. Let's peel back the layers. I got some layers to peel back. I, again, we're, going, we're in training on how to do this work. So we'll go slowly this week again uh, through it, and then we'll, we'll pick up speed next time. But let's, let's walk through the layers. Um, so first, let's start with the historical layer. One of the questions to always be asking as you read the Bible is, was there anything going on in their world that they would, like if you put this story up against the historical backdrop they would have understood that maybe because we're removed from the history or we just don't know the history, we miss because we don't know the historical backdrop. This is true in our world too, right? Like this is true in our world. If, if you just come into a situation assuming you have the answers but you don't know the historical backdrop, uh, you can actually give some really bad advice to people who, thinking you're giving good advice. The historical backdrop matters. Now, in this story, again, a little recap from last week. Uh, this story uh, looks very similar to a story that took place 200 years before this story. So 200 years before the story, uh, there is a Greek, a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes essentially wants to rid the world of Judaism. He doesn't like it. He doesn't like that the Jews don't bow down to Dionysus, the god of wine. He doesn't like that the Jews don't bow down to Zeus. He doesn't like it. He doesn't like that they don't bow down to Athena. He, he essentially thinks that they're barbaric. You have one God? What about all the other gods? He wants to rid the world of, of Judaism. So one of the things he does, among many of the things he does, is he puts up inside the temple in Jerusalem an altar to Dionysus and a statue of Zeus. Blasphemy. Uh, the first two commandments, uh, you know, that you should have no other God before me. You should not make an image of any other God. They're, they're, like, he's just spitting in the face of this. A man rises up uh, named, anybody remember his name? Judas Maccabees. Judas Maccabees, a man rises up and he says, what you are doing is not right. What you are doing is not good. Uh, The Greeks, they got better soldiers. They got more weaponry. They got more people. They got more power. They got more money. But we have chutzpah. We have passion. We have zeal. Who's with me? Let's fight them. And a group of people, later they'll call themselves the ones with zeal or the zealots, rise up and say, well, join you, Judas. Let's get it back. Let's, let's get rid of these Greeks. They rise up and they fight. And they win. And uh, the first thing they do after Judas Maccabees beats the Greeks is he goes into that temple and he gets rid of the statues. He gets rid of the altar. Let me read you the story. Uh, there's a historian by the name of, uh, he writes the story of the Maccabees, um, and uh, there's four chapters to the book of Maccabees. Uh, so between your Old and New Testament, there is a 
section of books known as the intertestamental books or the Apocrypha. Um, we, we don't hold them at the same prestige as the rest of Scripture, but if you want an interesting read, read those books. Uh, great history, great, great stuff. Um, this, this story is recorded in those, that section of books. This is from 2 Maccabees chapter 10. Notice the similarities between the Jesus story and this story. This story took place 200 years before the Jesus story. Now Maccabees, that is Judas, uh, Maccabees, and his followers, the Lord leading them on, recovered the temple and the city. They tore down the altars that had been built in the public square by the foreigners and also destroyed the sacred precincts. They purified the sanctuary and made another altar of sacrifice. Then, striking fire out of flint, they offered sacrifices after a lapse of two years, and they offered incense and lighted lamps and set out the bread of the presence. When they had done this, they fell prostrate and implored the Lord that they might never never again fall into such misfortunes, but that, if they should ever sin, they might be disciplined by him with forbearance and not be handed over to blasphemous and barbarous nations." It happened that on that same day on which the sanctuary had been profaned by the foreigners, the purification of the sanctuary took place. That is, on the 25th day of the same month, which was Kislev, they celebrated it for eight days with rejoicing in the manner of the Festival of Booths, remembering how not long before, during the Festival of Booths, they had been wandering in the mountains and caves like wild animals. Therefore, carrying ivy-wreathed wands and beautiful branches and also palm fronds, They offered hymns of thanksgiving to him who had given success to the purifying of his holy place. They decreed by public edict, rather ratified by vote, that the whole nation of the Jews should observe these days every year. So we have palm branches. We have then going into the temple courts. We have a cleansing in the temple courts. Do you see how when Jesus does the same thing on the same day, the cleansing of the temple happens on the same day as Palm Sunday, do you see how to that original audience, they would see the whole thing playing out and it would echo something from their not so distant, distant path, past. This is where we get the, the celebration of Hanukkah. This is their Independence Day. This is their July 4th. So just peeling back the historical layer, if you just peel just that one layer, do you see how the Bible becomes like, okay, what was like a two-dimensional story, now all of a sudden like, oh, the, the first audience is listening for certain things. Jesus is making a statement here. Now, what's that statement? Let's peel back another layer. Uh, let's peel back a geographic layer. Uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem. That's what, uh, that's what we read last week. But not only is he in Jerusalem, verse 12 tells us that Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling in the temple courts. So Jesus is in the temple courts. And always ask the question, Where are you here? Jesus is in the temple courts. Now, that's a little detail, but it's a big detail at the same time. We think temple, most of us, and we think, uh, at least I used to always think of the temple as one large structure, like a big old building. But the temple is not one big building. The temple is a building with several sections to it. Uh, They refer to them as courts. So when you read that Jesus is in the temple courts, One of the questions you should be asking is, which court is Jesus in? Where in the building is Jesus? Now, what they they understood was that the temple existed uh, not just just as a place to go worship God, but the the temple existed as a way of reminding the Jewish people the kind of God God is. Way back in their story, 
uh, the, a man by the name of Abraham, the founder of the people. God said to Abraham, uh, chapter 12, I'll let you read it. Um, God essentially says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to choose you and I'll choose your people, the Jews. I will bless you, but the blessing isn't just for you. I will bless you so that you can be, be a blessing to the world. To the Jewish people, the calling was, you're blessed to bless. You're chosen to bless others. Not because God likes you more, not out of privilege, but for service. However, there was a problem that happened really early in the Jewish story, really early in the Bible. Very quickly, the Jewish people started to see themselves not blessed to serve. They saw themselves as, we've been blessed because God likes us better. Now, if you're God, that's a problem, right? That's a problem. Because now you've got a bunch of people who aren't, aren't part of Israel who are left out. And then they were never intended to be left out. So what if you could build a building? What if God could build himself a house? Give you the blueprints. He'll build you a house. Build God a house. And in the house, by the, the sheer structure of the house, you will be reminded of the heart of God. And so in the book of 1 Kings, God gives the blueprints for what he refers to as his house. We call it the temple. Uh, there are five sections to the temple. In the center, almost like concentric circles. In the center, you have this area known as the, the, the holy place, or the most, the holy of holies, you might have heard. Uh, this is essentially in the house, God's house. This will be his bedroom. This is where he lives. Then outside of it, you have a priest's court, court of priests. Uh, that's where the priests would go, and they would do their duties. And then outside of that, you have the court of Israel, which is where Jewish men could go. And then you have the court of women. Uh, the way they understood it, the design, was that the closer you are to the center, the greater your responsibility to bless those on the edges. So God is the chief servant. He blesses the priests, who then in turn bless the men, who then in turn bless the women. God's the chief servant who serves the priests. The priests then serve the men, and the men then serve the women. And on the edges, and by far the largest section of the temple, is what is known as the Gentiles' court. The word Gentile is a fancy way of saying everyone is not Jewish. It means of the nations. Everyone else, whether you are a believer or not, could go to the Gentile court, and they could, be, they could receive God's blessing. Now, what does that blessing look like? Well, it looked like spiritual things, right? Forgiveness of sins, like that stuff. But it also looked like physical things. You can get food. You get cared for. You get medicine. If you're somebody who has a skin disease, you can go to the temple to actually get treatment. The structure of the temple existed as a way of saying, okay, how do I remind people that the point of this isn't just to see yourselves as better than everyone else? The point of this is to bless the world. But you can quickly see how this structure can get twisted. Let me show you another picture of this. Um, so this is a Gentile court. You can quickly see how this structure can get twisted, can't you? Quickly. doesn't take long. The Jewish people start to see the structure itself as, well, we're closer than you to God. We're, so God loves us more than you. And uh, men are closer to God. Priests are closer 
uh, the closest. The men are closer than the women, so God must like the men more than the women. And then the women, well, they're closer than all those foreigners, so God must love Jewish people more than he loves foreigners. And this then becomes kind of the, the twisted mentality of, of the Jewish people by the time of Jesus. The whole, now, this is a problem because your whole system was designed to bless. I'll bless you, God says. You bless the world. Jesus gets to the temple, and he discovers in the temple courts there is some business being done. And Jesus is livid about it. It's the exact... Okay, now, got, hold, this, hold the diagram in your head. Okay, you got it? It's hard work, I know. It's boring stuff. But stay with me on that stuff. Because the next... You now have to peel back a social layer to figure out why is Jesus so angry? He's in the temple courts. He sees what's going on. But why so angry? As you peel back the social layers, always be asking the question, who are these people? What motivates them? Uh, the, now, um, Jesus is in Jerusalem for an event. Do you remember the event he's there for? All Jews are there for the same event. Passover. Jesus is there for Passover. Uh, Josephus tells us that as many, the historian Josephus tells us that as many as 2.7 million people would pack in the city for the celebration of uh, Passover. Now, as part of the Passover celebration, your family would sacrifice an animal. Now, here's the dilemma. Uh, the, the Old Testament's clear. You got, the animal has to be perfect. Here's the dilemma. What if you don't live by Jerusalem? Jews from all over come here. So if you live, like if you live down the street from, from South Harbor, you could get your lamb over here, and you could probably keep him in shape. But what if you live in Rockford? How do you, and you don't have your car, you got to walk your lamb. How do you make sure your lamb is still good as you walk past down, you know, 131? Like, how do you keep your lamb, like, what happens if your lamb falls and he scuffs up his knee? It's no longer perfect. What if you're from Borculo? How do you keep your lamb perfect if you live in Borculo? Do you see the dilemma to the Jewish people? This is a dilemma. So you've got a group of people known as the Sadducees. They're known as the chief priests, the high priests. They see a solution to this dilemma. What if you, instead of having to carry your lamb with you all the way from Rockford, what if you could come empty-handed, just a little bit of money with you, and you could buy a lamb, pre-inspected, certified new, buy a lamb in Jerusalem that would be perfect. You could, you could offer that lamb as a sacrifice. Well, that would be offering you a service, right? That's a good thing. At the same time, uh, what, you're coming from Rockford, you're coming from Borkilo, where's, where's she's out there, you're coming from Borkilo, like you're coming from all over, you can't be bringing Rockford money into Byron Center, right? This is the problem. You can't be bringing Borkilo money into Byron Center. You can't be bringing uh, Jamestown money into Byron Center. We got, like, you can't have that, especially because Rockford money and Borkilo money and Jamestown money all of the, 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 national, the national money outside of Jerusalem had the image of Caesar Augustus on it. Caesar Augustus claimed to be the son of God, who was himself God. Let me show you a coin. It's known as the denarius uh, that has on it divine. You can't bring a coin to the temple. So you're coming from Rockford. You're going to buy an animal when you get into town. Awesome. Buy your animal in town. But you can't come with this, with this coin to the temple. That's blasphemy. That breaks the first two commandments. There's only one God, and you can't make an image of him. You can't bring a false God's image into the temple. I don't care if it's the common currency. 
But what if, the Sadducee, the Sadducee said, what if we could take your money and we could exchange it for something that looks like this? There's no image on it. It's a palm branch on it. Remember the great Freedom Day? You could then use this money. That would offer you a service, right? If you're coming from Canada, you got the Canadian money on it. You, you need American money. We'll, we'll, we'll trade it out. You come to the temple, we'll get you temple money. This is offering you a service. So uh, why is Jesus so angry? They're doing a service. Well, Matthew tells us, he just tells it in the details, and you have to read the details closely. The detail about Jesus entering the temple courts and seeing them selling in the temple courts, they're, they're in the wrong location. Do you see this? Which court are they most likely in? The Gentile court. The place God set aside to show the world that he's a good God, that he's a loving God, that he's here to bless them. They set up shop there. There is a spot. It's small because this was never supposed to be a booming business. It's underneath Robinson's archway, if you look at a diagram of the temple. It's, there is a spot to do this, this, the selling thing. It's outside the temple. But this year, they're inside the temple. Now, you look at a diagram like that, and you think, yeah, but that's such a big space. Like, if they're going to do it, and they're offering a service... What's the big deal? Why, why, I get it. Okay, so they're in the wrong spot. They're in the Gentile court. But why is Jesus this, this angry about it all? Okay, let's peel back another layer, uh, a biblical layer. Matthew 21, verse 12 says, again, notice the detail. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. He overturned the, money, the tables of the money changers and the benches, benches of those selling doves. Okay, so... Yes, he's doing business in the wrong, they're doing business in the wrong spot. That makes him angry. But there is a detail here. It's an odd detail. You read the detail and you're like, that's an odd detail. Um, you have to go back to the, remember the pay attention to the elephants? There's an elephant in the passage. Matthew puts it there intentionally. It's an intentional elephant if you're paying attention to the details. So anything in that passage, oh, it's in bold, never mind. Uh, I was gonna say, is anything feel weird? You see it in bold. Um, when you think of Passover, what animal do you think about? For those of you who grew up in church world, a lamb. Why does Mark, Matthew mention doves? We hear Passover, we think lamb. In fact, the whole celebration of Passover is all about lambs. Remember the original story? God said to Moses, I want you, the 10th plague, I want you to take a lamb, kill it, put its blood on your doorpost. That's a fascinating story. Someday we should dive into it. But, but it's a weird story, but kill the lamb, put its blood on your doorpost, and the angel of death, when he passes over, will spare your firstborn son. The angel of death will pass over your house. We'll call it Passover. That's what they call it, Passover. The whole thing was about a lamb. And then every year you take a lamb without blemish, and you bring your lamb as an offering, and then the priest brings his lamb as an offering, and there's a lamb for the people, and there's a lamb for your family. Why does Matthew mention doves? Why the weird detail? Well, there is a clause. Those of you who are lawyers, maybe like you pay attention to the fine print. There's fine print in your Old Testament. Every family is supposed to bring a lamb. Perfect. It's got to be perfect. But there is a clause. This clause comes up again and again and again in your Bible. There is a clause that you, you, you should bring a lamb, but in one event, if one thing happens... 
you don't need to bring a lamb. Here's the one event. As a penalty, an example, Leviticus 5. As a penalty for the sin they have committed, they must bring to the Lord a female lamb or goat from the flock as a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for them for their sin. Anyone who cannot afford a lamb is to bring two doves or two young pigeons to the Lord as a penalty for their sin, one for the sin offering and another for the burnt offering. You see the clause. It comes up again and again, example after example. By the way, Jesus' parents after his birth, what do they offer as a sacrifice? Do you remember? Doves. He's poor. Do you see why Jesus is so angry here? It's not just that they set up shop in the wrong spot. That's part of it. But they're taking advantage of the poorest of the poor, those who cannot even afford to offer the, the lamb. They got nothing. And, they're t- and these religious leaders are taking advantage of them. I imagine the, the conversation, it's got to go something like this, right? Like, Oh, welcome to the temple. My name is Rabbi Tim, and I'll be taking care of you this morning. How how you doing? How was your weekend? Go Lions. They're doing great, right? Hey, welcome. Come on in. Um, and uh, we're glad to have you. Uh, oh, you don't have any animals. You got to have an animal. It's Passover. You got you to sacrifice an animal. Um, okay, well, don't worry. We got you covered. We got animals over here. Go, go, pick, out, uh, uh, go pick out a lamb. Okay, you, you can't pay for the lamb with... That's got Caesar's face on it. You can't have that in this temple. Come on. Hey, don't, shh. We'll keep it quiet. Go over there. We, we got you covered. Go see my, my, uh, my assistant, Rabbi Jared, and he's over there, and he'll take care of you. He'll exchange your money out for you. No big deal. Oh, um, yeah, I know that a denarius is a day's work, and I know that the exchange rate's weird, but, you know, we got to make a living, too. And so I know, it's a, I know you're only making a quarter off of what a denarius is worth. I'm sorry about that, but... Um, actually, no, these lambs cost a little bit more than you have. I'm sorry, the exchange rate's high. I get it, but, um, oh, you know what? There's a clause for you. There's a, we'll take care of you. Bring a bird. You could take a bird. Kill the bird. Here's a bird. You could buy the bird. I know you could have brought one from home. Every, that's why God put the provision in. I know because everyone can capture a dove. Everyone can take care of a pigeon. I get it. That's why God put it in there, but you didn't come with a pigeon. You thought you were going to buy a lamb. You thought... We can sell you one. See why Jesus is so angry? Like, just, just being hustled. People, good people, sincere people, going to worship God, being hustled. And it's being done, um, get this detail, Jesus flips over the what of the, of, the, uh, of the people with doves? They're sitting there getting rich. We uh, excavators have been discovering, uh, archaeologists have been discovering mansion after mansion of Sadducees. Huge houses. Um, they've discovered in one house a five, what, the equivalent of our money, a $5,000 bottle of wine. We just discovered a couple weeks ago ivory in many of these houses. They're, they're, they're bringing in elephant tusks. There's not elephants in Israel. They're, they've got so much money, they don't know what to do with it all. They're like Kanye rich. Like, they're rich, rich, rich. And Jesus sees it. No big deal. But you're using your power, you're using your money, and you're, t- you're, you're making it on their backs? And he's furious. He's livid. And then Jesus says to him these words. It's written, he said to them, my house will be called the house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. Now, if you've uh, you got a study Bible with you, you, you probably notice that Jesus here is quoting two Old Testament passages. One from the prophet Isaiah and one from the prophet Jeremiah. I don't know about you, but um, when I get angry, it's not my go-to. 
I'm a pastor, so I, I wish I was. I've seen some of you angry. Um, I've, I've seen many of you at sporting events now over the last decade or so. Um, and uh, I've seen a couple of you on social media post. I won't say who. Um, but, but when we're angry, this isn't what we're doing, right? This is a weird way to respond. I, I get it, he's Jesus, but like, it is a weird way to respond, right? Um, most of us, when we're angry, our responses are a little less eloquent. Our language is a little more um, rated uh, M&M or something, right? Like our language is, um, I, I'm telling you right now, what Jesus said here is every bit as big of a takedown as Eminem and 8 Mile, if that movie reference still makes sense. Um, it's every bit as scandalous. Jesus here is pointing to two famous passages Go back and study Ramez from the summer. Um, he, and he's quoting two passages with a larger context in mind. Here's the first. Isaiah chapter 56. Um, God talks about how the temple of God will be his house and it'll be a house of prayer. That's where he quotes. That's from verse 7. But the passage doesn't end there. If you keep reading, it says, verse 10, Israel wa- Israel's watchmen are blind. Now, who are Israel's watchmen at the time of Jesus? The Sadducees, the priests, Israel's watchmen are blind. They all lack knowledge. They're all mute dogs. They cannot bark. They lie around and dream. They love to sleep. They're dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough. They're shepherds who lack understanding. They all turn their own way. They all seek their own gain. And he goes on and on and on. Do you see the takedown? Uh, then you get, he quotes Jeremiah 7, smashes them together. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we're safe, safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. And then jumping to verse 20. Therefore, this is what the, Lord, the sovereign Lord says. My anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man and beast, on trees of the field and on the crops of the land, and it will burn and not be quenched. You got to lose yourself in the music. I mean, it's got the takedown in it, right? Jesus is mad. These are fighting words. And they get it. You keep reading. They call, they, they get mad. They're, the word in your Bible is indignant. They get mad. How dare you accuse us of what you're accusing us of? And not only are you accusing us, you're threatening us. You're calling back to a time where God says, this house is burning down. How dare you? And if you keep reading the passage, both Isaiah and Jeremiah say, if you don't, if these watchmen of Israel, the priests, don't change their ways, God himself will intervene and do it for them. And what does Jesus do next? He goes to someone who's blind, and he goes to somebody who's poor, and he heals them. And then, you almost feel like the passion in it. Like, I'll do it because you're not doing it. Have you no shame sitting on your benches while you rip them off? Have you no heart? Have you no shame? And then uh, John tells us he brings out a whip. It's a weird detail. Seems out of character, right? What do you do with the violence? Again, it's the, yeah, God is love and joy and peace, but like, yeah, but what about the whip? What do you do with the whip passage? Again, read the passage closely. Notice what John tells us. Um, 
Uh, Verse 15, so he made a whip of cords and drove all from the Temple Mount. Read Read it closely. He made a whip of cords, which means he comes to the temple with something that he turns into a whip, right? He doesn't doesn't bring a cattle whip. He's not going Chuck Norris. He gets to the temple and he has something on him. Now that word whip of cords, the word for whip there is a Greek word for jellion. For jellion means a small whip. Actually, it doesn't mean whip at all. It means a small set of strings. And the word for cord there uh, is a word in Greek known as squainon. could also be translated knots. He makes a small, a small string of knots. What do good Jews bring to the temple mount that includes a small string of knots? I'm sorry, Jill. This was sitting on your bench, and you stood here the whole time and just let my prayer shawl sit in your seat. This is how Jews keep it today. This is from Numbers 15. God says every Jewish person should put tassels on the corners of their clothes. They referred to this as your prayer closet. Jesus says that when, when you pray, don't stand on the street corners, but go into your closet. This is what they refer to, a, your prayer closet. They didn't have closets on houses. They weren't living in mansions. Uh, th- this, uh, we got five knots. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We've got four spaces between the knots. Y, H, W, H, Yod, He, Vav, He, Yahweh. They would feel the knots. They would feel, they would feel the spaces between the knots. This was a prayer tool. It was a prayer tool. Jesus gets to the temple, sees what's happening, and he says, don't you remember why the house is, why God built this place in the first place? It's to bless them. It's to help them. It's to be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. And he whips them. I do not see a violent image in that passage. I see a man who's passionate to call them back. You've missed the point. You've missed it. And then Jesus leaves. And he goes back to bed. And now the question is, whose bed is he going back to? Always the right question, right? Whose bed at the end of the day is his friend's? Who are, his, who are his people? And uh, the rich Sadducees, their houses that we found, we found on the high hills in Jerusalem. Nice houses. Does he go back there? The passage goes on and tells us that Jesus goes to a city called Bethany. It's actually a village of Bethany. Let me show you it on a map. Bethany is a village outside of a village outside of the city. The word Bethany means house of misery. Um, the leading expert opinion of Bethany is that it's a leper colony. It's where you go when you're dying. It's where you go when you're sick. There's a famous story that takes place in Bethany. You know the story, maybe. Uh, Jesus' friend, his name is Lazarus. He's from Bethany where he dies. Why? Because that's where you go when you're going to die. Mother Teresa spent her life in cities like Bethany, It's where you go when you die. It's the hospice floor. We don't know how to cure your disease. These are Jesus' people. Those are his people. The crowds cheer him on, but these are his people. They go back to these rooms. Ivory, $5,000 bottles, but these are his people. He then gets up, goes to bed. He wakes up, and he sees a fig tree, and he says, how dare you not produce fruit, even though it's not the season for fruit? 
And he curses the fig tree. And we say, that's a weird detail. Until you start to recognize that, again, the biblical picture, the fig tree throughout the Bible is a picture of God's provision and care. Uh, there's a passage in Malachi that talks about how God, when, when God fully comes in his glory, every person will sit under their own fig tree. That's Malachi 4. Now, this passage takes on an added meaning in the 200 years before Jesus. Come with me back there. Uh, Judas Maccabees conquers. How dare you Greeks put up your statues? He takes it back. He cleanses the temple. We need someone to lead us now. The Greeks are out. We need someone to lead us. Who should lead us? Let's take a vote. The people vote, and they say, we know who should lead us. Your hands, Judas, has too much, they have too much blood on them. We need someone who can lead us. How about your brother, Simon? He can do it. So Simon becomes the first high priest, Judas' brother. A historian writes a eulogy about Simon. Apparently, Simon was a great man. Under Simon, everybody had everything they needed. There was peace in the land. In his eulogy, he quotes the prophet Malachi, and he says this, these words. Simon established peace in the land, and Israel rejoiced with great joy. All the people sat under their own vines and fig trees, and there was none to make them afraid. Everyone sat on there. And so in the 200 years leading before Jesus, the fig tree didn't just become an image of God's providence and God's provision and peace. The fig tree became an image of what it looks like when a priest takes care of, the, of all the people. And Jesus comes upon a fig tree, and it looks like it should be doing its job, but there's no fruit, and he curses the fig tree. Do you see what he's saying to the religious leaders? You Sadducees, you look the part, but then you go back to your mansions with the money you'd use to rip off the people who can't even afford to bring a lamb. They got nothing, and you don't even... Give them the dignity to catch their own dove. Anyone can catch a dove, a pigeon. You don't even give them the dignity. You rip them off. You make them buy. You take their money. How dare you? Have you no shame? And he's angry because they've misused their power. Now we come back to the question that we started with, maybe the most important question. What does this mean for us? Here's the question I um, actually we put together a study guide. It's online. Um, that we had printed copies, but we ran out. Uh, but it, do this work at home. This is the hard work. I've been wrestling with this one. How do I use my power? We all have it. Some of us have more than others. Uh, I think of power as say-so. Um, how do I use my say-so? Uh, we all have it. Uh, I know that some of you have less. Uh, a CEO that has more than a, you know, somebody who's working hourly. I get that. Um, but somebody who's working hourly has say-so still. If you have money, you still have power. Um, if, you've, if you've got kids, you've got power. If you've got friendships, you've got power. If you've got, here's a big one, if you've got leisure time, and you're here, so most of us have leisure time. If you have leisure time, you have more power than a majority of our world to this day. That have to work sun up, sun down. That's just, that's just true. So the question is not, is power good or bad? We know that, that that's a, it's a false question. The better question is, how do I use my power? 
Do I use my power to just make myself bigger, better, stronger? Or do I use my power to, to, to help take care of those who are more vulnerable? Who are your people? Who are the people that you, you go back to and say, I gotta help these people? This is a gut check for me. Another way to think of it, and even more of a gut check, if you're stuck on that question, here's, a, here's one that's real sticky. Here's an ugly one. What makes you angry? What are the things that make you angry? Do the things that make you angry, are they the conversations that seem to threaten your power? Are you the center of the, the story? This is a hard one. Or are the things that make you angry when you see somebody else's power threatened? A good way to gauge where our hearts are on how we use our power is to ask the question Jesus asked of, of these Sadducees, what drives your anger? There are two people who are angry in the story. Jesus is angry, but the Sadducees are also angry. What drives your anger? Is it to protect your own power, or is it, I, how dare you take advantage? Like, this is a hard question, but if Christians stop asking this question, we are not Christians, right? We can call ourselves a lot of things, but we are not Christians if we stop asking that question. What drives our, what drives our anger? The Sadducees could have said, he's right, we got to change. They, they could have done that. Right? They could have heard this whole moment and they could have said, we, got, we lost the plot. But instead, the Sadducee said, how dare you? We'll kill you. We'll kill you. And next week, the confrontation gets face to face, which is where we'll pick up the story. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Uh, Lord, um, as we... Lord, I, I pray that you would liberate us from um, just reading a story like this, uh, so two-dimensional. Lord, help us to see that you interacted and you engaged in really hard conversations because, Lord, you're trying to reclaim our hearts again and again and again. And then, Lord, would you help us to see, um, as hard as it is for every single one of us to do, uh, Lord, would you help us to see uh, our own hearts and our own motives uh, Lord, our prayer is that you would uh, allow your church once again to be a church that is known for all the things we talked about earlier, um, Lord, that we would be a church who's, who sees the needs of our community and steps in. But Lord, not just because that's what we're supposed to do, but Lord, that that's, you've given us a new heart. And so Lord, our prayer again and again is that you would soften whatever has become calloused and hard. And Jesus, we pray that um, we would turn it all back to you to your honor, to your glory, and to your fame. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen. We hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., you can find our service streamed live on our Facebook page. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.